Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whenever you are tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, our Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club, which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history, as well as the stories behind the stories featured within their pages. Our guest today is Bob Pretty. You'll know his voice from over 40 years of service with Missouri Net, and he's also the author of several books, including Only the Rivers Are Peaceful, the Art of the Missouri Capital, History in Canvas, Bronze, and Stone, and Across Our Wide Missouri, which is our feature for today. Welcome to Our Missouri, Bob. Thank you. Glad to be here. Talk a little bit about the origins of Across Our Wide Missouri. How did that all come together? Well, that goes back uh, more than 50 years. Uh, 1971 was the, the sesquicentennial year for the state of Missouri, the 150th anniversary. And I was working at a radio station in Jefferson City at the time, KLIK. I was the news director there. And we had a couple of books up in the newsroom called Missouri Day by Day that had been written by Floyd Shoemaker, the longtime executive secretary of the State Historical Society, based on some newspaper articles he'd done back in the 20s and 30s, I think. And I got to thinking, why can't I take some of this material and turn it into a little radio program every day that talks about something in Missouri history as a way to educate people about the state's history during this sesquicentennial. And so I started working with that material. I expanded it. I did some extra research because these were really pretty short pieces. And uh, I wound up going over to the state library, which at that time was only a couple of blocks from our studios. And I spent a lot of time in the Missouri reference section there. And uh, Floyd Shoemaker had several blank dates. There were some, some dates he didn't have anything historical that happened or he didn't write about it. And he didn't write about some other topics. He never wrote about crime. He never wrote about sports, for example. And those are two things we can't overlook as part of our life and a part of our history. And so I put in some things about that. At the end of the first year, we just kept going. And uh, uh, so it became, it was called Missouri in Retrospect at, at the start of that first program. And uh, the first show that I did was about Carrie Nation, the great prohibitionist lady who went around with an axe and busting up taverns and, and booze shelves and things like that. And I drew that from an article by Dorothy Caldwell, who was the associate editor of the Missouri Historical Review. And uh, the first program I did was about Carrie, and it was drawn on an article in the, in the Society's magazine uh, by the associate editor of the magazine. And eventually, to, to plug some of the gaps where I didn't have anything listed in, the, in, in Shoemaker's books, I came up to Columbia and started going through the newspapers up here. Uh, the millions and millions of pages of microfilm newspapers, I'd pull out the reels for various years uh, on a day that I was looking for something, or the day after, actually. And I would uh, go through year, several, several newspapers from several towns in several years of that particular day to find a story that I could use to fill that hole. 
And eventually we wound up with, uh, you know, 365 stories. I even came across a couple of things that happened on February 29th that I could use. But it was, it was during that time that I got to know Richard Brownlee a little bit, who was the executive secretary at the time, is the title I think that's what they had. And uh, uh, he, uh, eventually I wound up becoming a member of the society, uh, becoming a life member later on, and then uh, finally uh, somebody asked me to serve on the board, and then I became president of it many years later. So it all, th this whole career with the society uh, began with this radio program on February the 8th, 1971, and Floyd Shoemaker's newspaper columns that dated back to the 1920s. And so all I've done is just uh, just look up stuff that happened on a particular day and, and tell the story about what it was. And uh, it seems to have worked. It, uh, people seem to still like it. It's, uh, it's been on many radio stations. When, we, when I left KLIK in the November of 74, well, let me, let me go back just a second. Uh, one of my, my assistant news director for a couple of years was named Clyde Lear. And one day he looked at me across the table between our desks and he said, you know, pretty, you ought to put these things in a book. And so I, uh, I started looking for a publisher, and the first publisher said, well, this is interesting, but we'd rather you just write a conventional history. And I wasn't going to do that. And finally, a few years later, a woman named Margaret Baldwin from Independence Press in Independence, Missouri, uh, wrote a newspaper article in Kansas City asking if anybody had written any good books about Missouri lately. And so I wrote her a letter and said, well, funny, you should ask. <laughs> we wound up. Uh, Margaret and I over here at the Brady Commons one day, and um, she gave me a contract for the first volume of what had become on the network across our wide Missouri. When I left the radio station, I, uh, I wanted to take the radio program with me and, uh, and put it on the, news on the news network. The news network had been founded by Clyde Lear, my former assistant news director. And so that was one of the things we wanted to start the network with was this program. Now we realized that we needed to give it a new name because the name of the program belonged with the radio station. The manager of the radio station uh, claimed that, uh, that the radio station owned all of the stories that I'd written because they were part of my employment there, although the program was created completely voluntarily and, and, and sustained voluntarily by me. And so we, uh, we, we paid the, the boat payment fees for a couple of lawyers for a while and finally worked out an out-of-court settlement where KLIK could continue to broadcast Missouri in retrospect and we were broadcasting across our wide Missouri and I made sure they had copies of the scripts and I got to rewrite the scripts from the old radio shows for the network format. And so we both walked away from it, both getting what we wanted to do. Radio station eventually dropped the show, its version of the show after a few years, voiced by somebody else. And so we were clear all the way through after that to continue to do across what became across our wide Missouri. And then in 1984, the first book came out. And uh, the next book came out a couple of years later, volume two, because the first book covered only the dates from January through June. The second book was July through December. And then there was miscellaneous stories left over. So that became a third book. And a couple of ladies uh, worked with me to do an index in that book for all three volumes. So we have three volumes of Across Our Wide Missouri, but there's still a lot of stories that haven't been told yet, and a lot of stories that were in the original first few years of the show that I 
that I haven't put in book form. And if I there is a, if there is a fourth volume, it'll probably be a, an, an electronic book on the internet of some kind. But I've been doing other things with that. But that's how it all started. Now, what are some topics that you found fascinating as you were first kind of thinking about scripts for the radio program and later the book that you felt weren't being covered or hadn't been covered fully earlier in Missouri history? Shoemaker didn't do anything about crime or he didn't do anything about, uh, about sports. And those are two, uh, two important parts of our lives. Whether we, in the case of crime, we certainly are not particularly proud of that. But in the case of sports, we, we love our sports. And so I, uh, if you can't talk about Missouri history if you don't talk about Jesse James, for example. Um, and you can't talk about um, sports if you don't talk about the Cardinals and the Royals and the Chiefs and so on and Missouri Tigers. One of my first shows was about the 1960 Missouri-Kansas football game uh, where, where we were undefeated going into the game, number one in the country, and Kansas beat us at homecoming. I was at that game. And uh, then Kansas had to forfeit the game later on for use of an illegal player, Burt Cohn. And so we went on and beat Navy in the, in the Orange Bowl, and we were undefeated. We were 11-0 and that year officially, but we were really only 10-1. and But Dan Devine always maintained that 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 was a national championship team. In those days, however, the polls, the football polls, quit, quit doing polls at the end of the regular season. Bowl games didn't count. And I think that he felt that had they done a poll after the Orange Bowl, which we pretty well dominated Navy, and Joe Bellino, who was the Heisman Trophy winner that year, um, that uh, probably Missouri would have been number one at the end of the season then. So I told that story very, very early on, maybe in the first year. And there have been other stories of, of baseball players. And I, uh, Satchel Page, for example, I tell his story. Um, uh, Bob Pettit and the Hawks when they won the NBA championship in 58, that's in there. Uh, the story of uh, Jesse James, the Gads Hill train robbery, and, of course, his, his death. Uh, those were there. Uh, the, the Northfield bank robbery of the younger uh, James Younger gang that backfired on them so badly. I was in Northfield a few years ago. Finally got to see the bank. And so things like that began to go in there. Um, uh, there are references to uh, Tom Pendergast, the Kansas City boss, although I don't think I've ever done a show about him specifically. And so there are, well, and, and the Mormon War, there are two instances in Missouri where freedom of religion didn't matter much. And the Mormon War is one. And then the Father Cummins case after the Civil War is another. The Mormons, of course, were driven out of Missouri because of their religion and because, among other things, uh, their religion caused them to be abolitionists, which Missourians didn't like very much in the part of the state they lived in, and for other reasons. And, uh, and so forget about freedom of religion if you were a Mormon in Missouri in the 1830s. In the days after the Civil War, we had a constitution that we enacted in 1865 that included within it the loyalty oath that was expected of people during the war to uh, show that they had not given any support to the Southern cause or were not Confederate supporters, and they had to take an oath of loyalty to the state of Missouri if they were going to practice a profession or like teaching or preaching or law or medicine uh, or hold public office or serve on boards of directors of corporations, things like that. And there was a young priest in Louisiana, Missouri named Father John Cummins who refused to take the loyalty oath because his, oath was to, his, his loyalty was to God. 
And one day after he preached his homily at church, he was arrested for preaching illegally and thrown in jail. And he refused to pay his fine. They appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Missouri Supreme Court ruled against Father Cummins and said that uh, a church is nothing more than a gathering of people who share a common belief, but it, since it is a gathering of people, that comes under the state's police powers to control crowds. And the Supreme Court, which was at that time also loyal people, uh, upheld the case against Father Cummings. The case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court, by one vote, ruled in Father Cummings' favor. And the loyalty oath became a big thing because it, the feeling was the loyalty oath is just the opposite of the American system of, of justice. The loyalty oath requires you to prove that you are loyal. You do not, the, the state does not have to prove you are disloyal. And so you have to proclaim your innocence. The state doesn't have to proclaim your guilt. And that's, you know, right now you're presumed innocent until the state can prove you're not. And so the court threw that out, and the loyalty oath went away, and that's when we got our 1875 Constitution, which lasted until 1945, the Constitution we have now. So those were two instances that I wrote about where freedom of religion didn't really mean a whole lot in Missouri. I wrote about uh, the first lead mining in Missouri in 1720 and uh, one of the first lead mines uh, over in eastern Missouri where there was an Indian attack. Uh, I wrote about, uh, I wrote about the, the old town of Franklin, uh, the home of the Santa Fe Trail, the origination of the Santa Fe Trail. Uh, I wrote about uh, Indian raids and I wrote about Daniel Boone and, and you know, all kinds of things. Th there are a few stories that stick in my mind that I found particularly fascinating. Uh, one is of an old guy from Kansas City, um, Jacques Fournays. He was uh, a Frenchman from Quebec, and he was about 12 years old when the British and the uh, and Americans fought for control of Quebec. And this was uh, in the 1700s. And as a young man, he came to this country and settled in the Pittsburgh area and found himself in New Orleans in 1815 when uh, Andrew Jackson fought the British. Uh, but Jackson did not want his help because he was too old to fight at that time. I think he was about 65 or 70. He came to Missouri after that and became one of the early settlers of the Kansas City area. Um, he went upriver with some of the early fur trapping expeditions, and in one case, uh, he got separated from his party and shot a buffalo, but didn't kill it, and the buffalo charged him and knocked him down and stomped on him pretty good and broke his leg, and then wandered off and died. And Fournay's recovered consciousness sometime later and uh, crawled a couple hundred miles to the nearest outpost and uh, recovered. Another time he got separated from his hunting party and was surrounded by Indians and hid in some bushes overnight and the Indians pitched camp just a few yards away from him. So he had to lay there and not move. And the next day the Indians gave up looking for him and left. And by now he was 90. And uh, the old broken bones didn't work very well when he tried to get up, but he managed to get up and again he walked back to civilization. He always said that the uh, the greatest thing he ever saw was the arrival of the first train in Kansas City in 1867. He died of a sunstroke in 1869 at the age of 124. 
and uh, probably the oldest person in Missouri. At least, at least they say that's what his age was. And if you count back to the battle in Quebec, it works out. 124. And I, I tell people when I tell this story in speeches and the like, I said, you know, if the old fool would have had the good sense to wear a hat, he might still be with us today. But uh, people like Jacques Fournay's are, are kind of fringe people you don't ever hear about, and they're not the ones that, that you write about in your history books as important historical characters. But, but people like that are, uh, are just fascinating folks, and I wish, I wish I could have heard the stories that people like that would tell. You, know, you meet all these historical figures, and I'm sure you've run across them, Sean. You, you see historical figures, and you think, boy, would I like to have spent an hour with those people. And this is one of the people I would have loved to have spent an hour with, just listening to him tell all these tales about life on the frontier and fighting the British in New Orleans and, and uh, uh, getting kicked around by a buffalo and hiding from Indians. What a life that was. You know, there was Jim Bridgers, another one, a famous frontiersman and, and uh, fur trapper who is probably one of the greatest, uh, greatest men of the American frontier. There's passes and lakes and mountains named for him out west. But uh, he was from Kansas City, and he was totally blind when he died. And I, I, I write that I, I suspect that he probably sometimes, in his own mind, he was able to picture the mountains that he used to run in and, and, uh, and, and hunt in. But that's another one that it would have been fascinating to talk to. There are so many historical figures that you come across when you dig into this stuff that, that you just wish you could have talked to. And uh, occasionally I come up, I'm, I'm able to come up here and I'm able to find in, in some of our voluminous files documents, handwritten letters or something by some of these people or, or reflections by other people of them as their contemporaries. And I, I get a little bit more of a dimension to them and uh, they're really fascinating folks. There's a guy that I've never written a story about and I probably will never will. When I was at college here in the University of Missouri, one, instead of going home to Illinois and going to work at a newspaper there during the summer, I stayed here in Columbia and I sold encyclopedias. And that was the year that I determined that sales was never going to be part of my future. But I was working in Columbia one night and I knocked on the door and an old guy came to the door by the name of Brooks Bradley. He was 77 years old at the time and he called himself the oldest printer in the state of Missouri. His grandfather once almost murdered Odon Guitar, a, a famous Colombian. Uh, his family, uh, the, uh, Bradley's family was Southern, and Guitar was a former Union general. And so there was still some, a lot of anger between these two families. And the way he told it, his, his grandfather one time corralled Guitar in the stairwell of a building downtown and held a gun to his head and threatened to blow his head off. I wish that I knew then what I know now, and I could have talked to Mr. Brad. I didn't sell any encyclopedias that night. I didn't knock on any more doors after I got to his house because we sat there, and he talked about, he talked about running steamboats up the Osage River as far as Warsaw. This was you know, years before, decades before Bagno Dam. And he was just full of stories like that, and I wish I wish he would have written them down, or I wish somebody had written them down about him. I still have the newspaper article from the Columbia Tribune uh, about his death, 
that's that's what a, a fascinating character he was to me. And so sometimes as you dig around, you run into these people and you get to know them a little bit better by what they wrote or in the case of recordings that you find some, what they said, what they actually said, what they sounded like. But a lot of this is, uh, is just persons who knew persons who can relate these historical figures to you and can call them and recall them, uh, they bring them back. There's, there's a, an old saying in ancient Egypt that to mention the name of the dead is to make them live again. And that's why they made sure they carved names in all their tombs and everything. Well, anyway, so whenever I dig into these boxes of, of journals and letters and things like that, um, these people are alive again to me. And, and I, 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 I'm listening to them. When I, re I don't read their letters as much as I listen to them. I don't hear their voice specifically, but I, I listen to the words. And so I know them on a more personal basis than I would otherwise because I have a chance to, to dig into these files that we have, these, these wonderful, wonderful files. And that's why journals and diaries are so important because those are, those are real people that are speaking to us from the written page. Long and there's no other way we can ever learn about them, but we learn about them because of what they wrote. And those are the stories that I like to get into and tell a lot. As I've written other books beyond across our wide Missouri, I, when I wrote the book about the Benton mural at the Capitol, I came across several recordings of Benton, interviews that he did. And just to listen to him, I wish I would have been a little mouse in the corner of his living room after dinner some night when he and some cronies were sitting down over bourbon and branch water and talking about the world. He was a fascinating man, and fortunately, he was alive when we have recordings of him. Uh, when I started writing about the Capitol, with the first book about the art and now the book about the history itself, I've been prowling around through governor's papers here and letters to and from the governor and, and some other people who are part of that story, and their, their letters, their journals are available here or they're available in some other historical societies. And to, to read those letters and to hear those interviews, or to read those interviews, uh, is to bring them very much back to life. I, I like to say there are ghosts that live in boxes here. And you get that feeling as you, as you read through that stuff. Uh, this, this last year, 2020, I was uh, messing around trying to find out something about Stephen Cole, for whom Cole County was named. And I was looking through an old newspaper here from 1823, the Franklin Intelligencer, and there were two articles that talked about Stephen Cole's brother, who died in an Indian attack in 189, and they both said Cole County was named for William Temple Cole, not Stephen Cole. So we celebrated the, the, the bicentennial of Cole County by finding out who our county was really named for. And I came across a couple of written interviews with 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 uh, with the Temple Cole's. One was with his son, and another one was with Stephen Cole's son, I believe. I don't think they were here. One of them I know was in Wisconsin, but I came across interviews that were done in the 1860s and 1870s with the son of Temple Cole and Stephen Cole, and they talked about this incident. And Here's, here's almost a first-hand recollection of the incident that killed the man for whom Cole County was named. 
And if that if that doesn't make the blood run a little bit faster, when you find things like that with with firsthand knowledge of of the things that happened that are so historical, history really comes alive. History is not a dead issue at all. History is not something old and musty and dusty you put on a shelf. It's real and it's very human. And and if you if you listen to it, it tells you things. It's great stories. And that's that's what across our wide Missouri, Missouri in retrospect, is uh, as it started out. That's been the whole goal is to let history tell the stories that people can hear and learn about Missouri. Why do you think it's had such a legacy over what is now today 50 years? I mean, thinking about not only people who have heard the radio programs, they've read the books. What's the connection? Why do you think people are so enamored, so supportive, so embracing of a project that began 50 years ago? I, uh, well, I guess I guess it might almost seem like I'm bragging here. Part of it is the way the story is told. Uh, as a journalist, which I've been all my life, well, not all my life, but you know, I, I came to the University of Missouri to become one, and so I've been one for more than 50 years. Uh, I learned long ago that that you you hook your readers or you hook your listeners within the first couple of sentences of a story, and so telling history stories from that standpoint of finding something that is going to grab the mind of the listener or the reader and then draw them into the story. That's, that's part of being a journalist. That's part of being a good historian. I, I hate to read historical articles that begin with so-and-so was born on such-and-such such a date in such-and-such such a place. Right away, I think, oh, this is not going to work. And so I, I always try to start these stories in a way that kind of makes people think, Oh, that's interesting, and then they stay with it. Um, so it's 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 telling a story. An example that I've often used uh, when I when I talk to young people going into journalism. Remember when you were a child, and mom and dad wanted you to go to sleep, and they would read a story to you, and sure enough, you'd go to sleep. But if mom or dad sat on the edge of the bed and started telling you a story, you wouldn't go to sleep until the end. And that's the difference. So I'm not r it's not a case of reading a story to people. It's a case of telling a story to people. And the, s the telling a story is what keeps people interested. Um, there are ways that you draw people into the story. And that's what I try to do with, with all of these across our wide Missouri pieces is Right away, I tell them something that says, this is what's special. This is, listen up, I'm going to tell you something interesting. And it's worked pretty much all these years. And I guess that's why people like it. The, the, one of the greatest compliments, no, two things that, that I, I think have been the greatest compliments that I've gotten from all these years of telling these stories. Very early on, um, when I was just at Jefferson City program, uh, the program was on the air at 7.35 every morning. And that was about the time people were going to work. And the first compliment that I got was from somebody who said, you know, I drive to work, but I sit in the car until the program's over before I go to the office. And 
that I think was a tremendous compliment because it meant that whatever I was doing, I was doing it in a way that engaged them and held their interest until the end of the program. And the other one, every now and then I'd get a, a letter from a teacher or somebody would write to me and ask to me to send them a book because they wanted to start their class every day by reading the episode about that day in Missouri history. And that, I think, was really the high compliment, was that these were written in such a way that teachers would use them to engage students in the story of Missouri history, because one of the things, one of the goals is to educate people about our history and the diversity of our history, good and bad. And, and uh, when teachers told me that, that was really, that really made me smile a lot. So I guess it's just a, a way of telling the story, of, of, of hooking the interest very early on. Um, and uh, and then going from there. I have, in fact, the first story that I ever did, the first story was about Kerry Nation, as I said earlier, the, the great temperance battler who liked to take an ax and go into ca taverns and break things up. And uh, I think I started the story by, by saying something like, to call Kerry Nation an old battle ax is to capture the essence of her history, of her fame. And then I went into why she was... Uh, why she was so famous and, and, and about, uh, about things. So uh, that kind of thing is what caught people's ear. Well, battle, battle, don't talk about it, you know, like that. And so um, that's, that's one way that I went about it. In the original stories, there was no time limit on them. Now on the network, I'm down to three minutes and 35 seconds in the latest one. So I always try to hook, hook people on, that, on the first, first paragraph. So you start out talking about the death of somebody famous right away, and people think, what? In the spring of 1832, a privately financed expedition left from Fort Osage, Missouri, bound for the Rockies. The trip was partly a major experiment, a test to see if wagons could really be taken over the Continental Divide on the way to the West Coast. There were about 20 wagons, and the expedition planned on start staying out for two years. The experiment succeeded, but there was another, more sinister, part of that story, and we'll tell it in a minute. So we always, we always started out with opening the, opening the piece with a, a, with a brief intro and then breaking for a commercial so that people would get exposed to something we wanted to sell, and then we'd come back and tell the rest of the story. And so we, that's, that's the hook we always tried to bring in uh, when we started these shows, and that's, that's, I think, why people stayed with it. And plus, it, it's a different way of telling Missouri history. It's bite-sized history. It's not reading a whole chapter or a whole book. It's just here's a bite of Missouri history, and nice and concise, and uh, you can think about this during the day. It's not chronological. It's just interesting things about Missouri. And so it's worked. As you're looking back through that, the book that you brought in, the, the notes originally, thinking back 50 years, What's a story that's your favorite, if there is just one? And what do you think, in your mind, is the legacy of Across Our Wide Missouri? Well, I hope the legacy... Uh, Across Our Wide Missouri has been on dozens of radio stations on the Missouri Net, affiliates of the Missouri Net, for many years. And then for several years, I also did a syndicated one-minute version of the show called Missouri Moments for what was then Northeast Missouri State University. And it was mostly up in North Missouri and Northeast Missouri stations where they drew most of their students. Um, I, I hope that the legacy is that uh, the people who heard the original shows have an interest in Missouri history and 
they're interested in it. Uh, whether they become historians or not, they at least understand the value of knowing about their past, the good and the bad. And I hope that by an, uh, exciting a certain amount of interest in history generally, I have uh, I've heightened their awareness of history and their their potential to enjoy it more than they would otherwise and to look at things from more of a historical standpoint. Understand that there's a context to today's events. I've always thought that a reporter is not a good reporter if they don't know some history. Because everything that we cover as reporters has something that has happened before that has set the stage for today. And understanding how we got to where we are today is really important in understanding who we are. And I worry, uh, especially in light of some more contemporary events that uh, for some reason, we've forgotten about our history and uh, we, we haven't learned our history very well while we're making our history. And so uh, I just hope that through the years, I've created kind of a culture for people to understand the importance of, of, of history and importance of events as they string together to make us what we are. And in, uh, and in that respect, uh, they might be less likely to focus on the immediate, but understand how we, uh, but want to know how we got to where we are, and want to find out more about what happened leading up to this. So I hope I just have created an awareness of history and a curiosity about it. Uh, not that I think that all six million Missourians would, would be that interested, but if, if a few people pass on through generations in the importance of history and understanding history, then I think I've accomplished what I want to accomplish. Uh, we, we, can't, we can't live in a society today harmoniously or understanding the world around us if we don't know something about the past. And so I want people to have an appreciation for the past. Um, sometimes when I've talked to school classes, I've tried to bring it down more to, to their personal feel feelings, their personal attitudes. And I suggest to a lot of school kids, go home and talk to your parents about how you came to live in this town and how your family came to live in this state. And go back a long ways and ask about your grand, talk to your grandparents if they're still alive and have them tell you their stories. Because if you understand your family history, if you understand that, that your family has lived through all of these things, a lot of these things that we talk about. Uh, I talked to a sixth grade class, oh, 15 years ago. So that would have been 2005. And they were 12 years old, so that means they were born in 1993. And if their parents were 25 years old when they were born, that means the parents would have been born in 1968. And if their grandparents were 25 years old when the parents were born, that gets us back to 1943. And if you see people who date back to World War II, uh, who lived during the years of Roosevelt and Truman and the Korean War and Eisenhower and all, the, and all of these presidents, History is much, much more compressed and therefore much more valuable to you because you're looking at people who are that history and they lived through it and you know them. And the 
because you know them and you know what some of their stories are about progressing from 1943 to now, you you have a greater understanding of your family, you have a greater understanding of, of your family's history as it plays out against national and state events, and you have a greater understanding of the events that were part of the, within part of the world during that time. One of the best things I ever did was uh, sit down with my mother, who was born in 1909, and I spent uh, about, I've got about three hours of her on tape. She was born in Kansas. She remembers the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. Uh, she remembers the Dust Bowl and uh, the, the stories the stories of those things. The story of the, the stories she told me of the Dust Bowl make all of that come alive. And so if you if you reduce this to to persons that you know or persons that you can read about, you have a greater understanding of, of who you are because you know where you came from. And you have a better under a better ability, I think, to evaluate contemporary events and evaluate people around you because you have this background of personal history that tells you about people and events and how things shaped and how things were different. I mean, when I was in Columbia, uh, one night my church group and I went out and, and picketed a, a, a segregated bowling alley on Providence Road. Most folks don't realize when they drive past that bowling alley, which I think is still there, that at one time black people couldn't bowl there. It's been a long time ago. But those of us who are still around who can relate stories like that make Columbia come alive in a different way. And we can evaluate Columbia today better by knowing where we have come from. And we can perhaps understand where we need to go in Columbia or Jeff City or any other town because we know where we have been. And we know what it took to get us where we are and then we have a better understanding of what we have to do to get us down the next down the next generation. Thank you very much for joining me today, Bob. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri Podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. Thank you.